Hello and welcome to Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering. My name is Gideon Futterman and I will be hosting this podcast today. It's my second time hosting one of these podcasts and I'm here with Aaron Cooper. Aaron, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, um, thanks, thanks for having me on on this on the podcast. Obviously, I'm quite a regular listener to Review 2, uh, Review two Does Geoengineering. But yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. So yeah, so I... Aaron Cooper. I am a lecturer in law, uh, public international law at Coventry University, and also a PhD student at the University of Eastern Finland. And my research specifically focuses on indigenous participatory rights in the Arctic within the context of geoengineering and its potential, potential re- like the research deployment, potential deployment rather, and the place of indigenous peoples within potential governance framework fantastic and i'm an undergraduate studying sciences at the university of oxford so vastly less qualified than you (laughs) (laughs) so today we're going to be discussing the solar geoengineering non-use agreement which was open an open letter published a couple of days ago now And we're going to be discussing through the letter itself, what's been written in it. We're going to be discussing what we like about it and what we're in favour of, what some of our issues with it are, as well as discussing the overall discussion that's gone around it and whether this is constructive or negative to the overall state of the geoengineering discussion. Mm -hmm. Won't read through the whole letter, but we will provide a link to that, hopefully, in the notes. For this podcast including the website and the paper but essentially the open letter asks for an international non-use agreement on solar geoengineering which and now i'm quoting should commit governments to five core prohibitions and measures number one the commitment to prohibit their national funding agencies from supporting the development of technologies for solar geoengineering domestically and through international institutions number two the commitment to ban outdoor experiments of solar ge- geoengineering technologies in areas under their jurisdiction. Number three, the commitment to not grant patent rights for technologies for solar geoengineering, including supporting technologies such as the retrofitting of aeroplanes for aerosol ejections. Number four, the commitment to not deploy technologies for solar geoengineering if developed by third parties. And number five, the commitment to object to future institutionalization of planetary solar geoengineering as a policy option in relevant international institutions, including assessments by the International Governmental Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So, so hmm. let's let's start out just by quickly saying that anything we're saying here isn't targeted at the signatories of the latter because we know they might have slightly different views to the exact wording of the letter, but might have overall thought it was a good idea to sign. We're not targeted, and therefore we're not really, certainly in the first section of this, going to be responding to stuff they've said outside of the context of the letter. We're instead going to be responding directly to the wording of the letter and some of the things that have been written, particularly in the paper that occupied the letter as well. Mm. With that out of the way... Let's start with some positives. Is there anything of the letter which you agree with, you think is useful? I mean, gen- I mean, generally speaking, the 
I think one of the things I mean that we have to that we have to acknowledge as well is that all of the signatories to this letter and and their kind of motivations behind it, they pretty they are I mean they're leading academics, leading academics, professors, etc. And through the Earth Systems Earth Systems Governance Initiative, of course, they've looked at God knows how many different mechanisms. So, I think one of the one of the things or one of the positives that we do can take away the from this is of course the idea of governance of solar of solar geoengineering and potentially could it be done fairly and effectively and i know they do say that that one of the key things that should be included if within the governance system is that obviously the world's poorest the world's poorest and those that those that are most vulnerable to climate change are included in the decision making processes mm-hmm. So yeah, from that, from a governor's perspective, at least, I think um, that's a key point. It's a key point, and it's a positive. Yeah, I'd agree. I do think it's important, though, to broadly suggest that the signatories think that such equitable governance is impossible, because the the accompanying paper did, re- I think, relatively expi- explicitly suggest that. It is pretty much under the current order, world order, that countries will not basically present, place the control of these technologies and powerful and effective enough multilateral institutions for Mm. governance to be fair. And I think that is, or at least to a large degree, the motivations in the paper for this non-use agreement. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, that's pretty much explicitly what they say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I know, I mean, like Jesse Reynolds, I mean, he's frequently worked and frequently published on the governance of solar geoengineering. And I mean, there's work, I mean, there's work that he's he's done and work where he's cited the use of specific tools that could be utilised to within the kind of creation of a potential governance system. And and sometimes I kind of look at this and I think, well, the obstacles that are in place aren't insurmountable. They're not insurmountable. And maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe I'm being naive. Maybe I'm being overly idealistic. But, but I think as far as a governance perspective, like from a governance perspective, I think there are the tools in international law that could potentially, that could potentially govern something of this nature. I also think that something that Jesse Reynolds speaks about, certainly in his book and in other mm. things, that is really somewhat ignored here, as much as I'll sort of caveat that a bit later, yeah, is yeah. the role of informal governance mechanisms. Yeah. And this takes a very state-driven approach to governance mechanisms. And I think there's a big question, and I think certainly is something Jesse discusses, of how premature that could be at this stage as well. Yeah. And we'll get that when I back, I think back into that when we talk about the outdoor experimentation and my real mm, issue yeah. with that. But I do think it's an interesting point that they somewhat ignore that while simultaneously participating in that sort of informal governance. And this open letter, even if it doesn't lead to governmental action, by the way that it influences the norms of the field, will help within that. And although they do briefly mention informal governance in the paper, it's it's mainly irrelevant to the overall document as well. 
alternatively, a lot of informal governance discussions really refer to formal governance, even if they actually act as informal. So I'm not suggesting that they didn't deliberately ignore it for a you know calculated and very reasoned reason. Another thing of the overall letter, which I would generally say I would broadly be in favour of, is a current as or a, at least a, or a current a suggestion at least that mm. we should have a current temporary moratorium on deployment, which is basically their point four when they say the commitment to not deploy technologies for solar geoengineering if developed by third parties. Yeah. And I think that's really, I actually think that's really useful. And if the non-use agreement was that, I would be signing on to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, I agree. I agree. I think in, because I think overall, in terms of actual deployment at this stage, far too many uncertainties. And I think there is too little in terms of actual, like physical outdoor experiments, which have been, that have been conducted. So I, I would, if if it was a kind of calling for a moratorium in that sense, but like there wasn't any of this well, stifling research, shall we say? I know it's not explicitly like curtail, like it doesn't explicitly call for a kind of curtail any kind of research. And I think comments that have been made outside of this letter have said that the intention was not to stop research, but to stop to kind of call for non-use, call for non-deployment. So yeah if it was like that i would be i would be in agreement with it uh as well i think yeah i actually i think there's various reasons why at this stage certainly a temporary moratorium deployment might be really useful even if it wasn't actually pro- or at least a call for that because the hope would be that it would create some degree of inertia even among states that might be slightly inclined to deploy mm. which would give time or at least some degree of time, a bit some degree of leeway for more sensible decision making and better governance institutions we put in place. Yeah. And certainly, and hopefully, if there was a moratorium at any one point, that might reduce the moral hazard of research. Yeah. Because essentially, because if the research, if the only you know purpose, it, and because you could also, sorry, you could also align research rather than the goals of necessarily deployment or anything like that, but of assessing how useful a moratorium may be to carry on doing. So that would allow for more assessment of risks of higher scale research. Mm -hmm. I would even support if the moratorium wasn't just suggesting deployment, but large scale environmental impact research, which I think at this stage, uh, there is a significant slippery slope towards deployment. And so on that point, I think that's a really, I think point four is a really useful one. Point five, which is the commitment to object to future institutionalization of planetary energy engineering as a policy option in relevant international institutions, including assessment by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. What's your thoughts on that one? I've got a couple of issues with this, and I think this kind of links into links into a kind of how I feel about number one as well in terms of prohibit the, the prohibition of national funding. Because I think doing this sort of thing without government oversight is a big mistake. I think if it's just, if the, I mean, the conversation already as it is, is being shaped primarily by non-state actors and kind of re- and like researchers and institutions and things like that and Harvard and the, trying to do in the stratospheric Scopex, trying, trying to do that and such and look at the kind of fallout from Scopex 
Yeah, I, I think in terms without government oversight and without a body like the IPCC basically keeping tabs on what is occurring, I think potentially, potentially with the increased, the well, the no doubt the kind of like increased interest from public from private bodies i think it would be i don't want to say disastrous because it's probably too strong of a word but i think it would be detrimental to the interests of the most vulnerable groups because if you look at like existing if you look at existing consultation procedures they're not particularly i mean they haven't exactly covered themselves in glory with the kind of framework for consultation with indigenous peoples and such so yeah, so I think without government oversight, I think it would be a big it would be a big mistake. I think I mean I know it's not a I know government oversight isn't a kind of foolproof guarantee that it's going to be largely successful, but I think if the conversation is kind of elevated to that state level, I think there is a greater there is a greater chance of more vulnerable more vulnerable populations being included in that conversation. So that's my issue. Yeah, that's what that. Those are my kind of thoughts with on four point five, kind of linking to one. I think, and I think we can now sort of move a little bit also into some of our critiques. I think we've already mm. been doing that already. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think it's an interesting one. I think a lot of this hinges on the word development, mm. and I think that's I think that's a real issue, right? Because I think a lot of I think a lot of people may distinguish between just pure research things like risks and things like scientific issues governance issues and the development of the technologies and i've seen i think that's one of the ways that a lot of people have argued that this doesn't really call for a reduction in research on the matter but i don't really see how they can be adequately um distinguished between yeah certainly not in a true governance framework i think there's an argument that and I'm, I think certainly at this stage, in, informal governance is much more important than formal. I think there's an argument that norms and, and normative things, which might suggest that research, which is not with the explicit end goal of deployment in mind, might be useful. Mm. But even then, I think there's issues, and we'll get onto that a little bit later. Yeah. And I think that is where like the issue of how much government funding should be used and how much should they not be is a really interesting one because it mm. hinges on this development. Because the this research team here comes from an institution which is government funded, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, and I think, and having read Jerome's book, who's one of the other authors, where he sort of explicitly talks about the difference between, um, and well, basically how the Harvard group and the more European side, yeah, like as in that group, how they both have broadly similar aims in terms of why they don't want funding from certain groups, but they take the conclusion that that means that they should have government funding so they could be as democratic and independent as possible, while Harvard takes sort of the idea should have private funding so uncooptive by governments. And so I'm guessing that they're taking a very different view that what they're doing isn't, or which I guess it's not development of technologies, yeah. but what they're doing isn't end-tool development. And if you had a similar analogous physical science research thing, that wouldn't be development. But it's unclear to me why that isn't development. And it seems like a bit of a nebulous distinction, which is perhaps what they wanted to try and open up a conversation. Nonetheless, I think that might pose serious issues. And I think that comes back to this IPCC report, right? The IPCC point and the institutionalization. 
as a policy option, which is I would broadly be in favour of some degree of international work on this. I think an IPCC special report, as sort of Jesse Reynolds has called for a couple of times, yeah. uh, might be really useful, in particular in sort of synthesising the risks, uncertainties and stuff like that. Whereas if the IPCC, whereas I'm not really treating solar geoengineering as a policy option, as it were, but more assessing it as part of what would happen if that was done. Yeah. As opposed to the, as opposed to like what happened with Bex and the integrated assessment models and stuff, yeah. where uh, and integrated assessment reports, which is where it was just put as policy option with essentially no assessment of the risks. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of angle, i.e., if it was put into the sort of integrated assessment models and stuff like that for solar engineering, I think that might be really detrimental, and I think that might have a real issue with moral hazard. Yeah. Whereas if there was an, a special report from the IPCC that might do that might actually allow for a focused research that is not also for the development of the technologies as well and so i guess here and i guess this is always inherent in an, in an open letter anyway but the sort of looseness of the language means that this could be taken in very different ways some of which i'd be broadly in favor of and some of which i think are as you pointed out very unjust and pretty negative yeah perhaps aren't i mean if anything if if anything certainly started quite a conversation again <laughs> yep yeah um no i mean no i uh i completely i completely agree with that uh, and that point i think there is there is value and i think including it in the ipcc for a kind of special report i think that's a good way forward i mean if was it the the one that was published oh what was the last report that was published but tail end of last year i think there was there was a, there was a small mention of uh sr like solar radiation management yeah, was, that was, was working group one wasn't yeah it? Work, yes that's the one that's the one but it was only there was only a small section it wasn't it wasn't compre- it wasn't as comprehensive as i thought it was going to be um and the ipcc is notoriously bad at at solar geoengineering in their reports chiefly because for some strange reason they don't have the same bar of evidence for solar geoengineering as they seem to do for everything else there are a number of very serious claims on solar geoengineering published in the ipcc report hmm. which did not have any citations by them yeah and if i'd done that in one of my undergraduate papers i'd have got slated for that how's that how's that getting by pcc i think i think if if you did that like anything publication you'd be absolutely well where's your yeah where's your citation for this get out of here kind of thing but but yeah yeah i do do think things things like that if they do get through the if they do get through the cracks obviously it doesn't really give us any it doesn't really give it any kind of credibility like i mean for covering SRM like solar geo and any kind of any kind of points that they are making so yeah so I think I think in that case I mean is a sort of there's positives and negatives with this it's a really it's a really thorny problem in Mm -hmm. general and this is why the something like this letter both it's useful to have in the conversation, but if this yeah, was accept- sure. but if this was accepted wholeheartedly, I think it would be incredibly hubristic because it would present 
the current, at least these researchers, current consensus that governance isn't possible, that solar geoengineering is too dangerous to ever to be deployed, which we'll assess those later, that outdoor research has a direct slippery slope and outdoor research can't add anything useful that would be, that would also more useful than the potential risks mm. and that we can't do any ways to reduce the moral hazard by doing research. Mm. It would basically take those as givens and and implement something on the, which could have wide-reaching effects for some of the poorest, most vulnerable people in the world, have wide-reaching effects, locking in a, basically a single future for my generation Yeah, based on that. Mm. And as much as I know that they are motivated by genuine concerns for my generation, people who made Global South. I think it's incredible. I think in general, this assertion and the assertions made here, certainly if you take it to a more, particularly the ban on outdoor experiments, which I think we need a bit more of a discussion on, yeah, is, incre- is incredibly hubristic. I think, and I, I wrote this in a Twitter thread, thread that I was talking about. To deal with this issue, we're going to need both humility and courage, right? We need the humility to understand that our research is imperfect and is and is flawed and the world is very, very, very complicated. Mm. And I think they rightfully make this critique of natural scientists who seem to think that um, climate models will be able to fully understand the impact of geo, which it just won't. Yeah. And the outdoor experiments will solve all the uncertainties. They just won't. But I think the humility isn't quite there with also both the governor's proposals, but also the value-driven trade-offs as well. Mm. Um, And there's something in particular which I found related to this point in the paper, which I found really interesting, which basically said that we can't have climate justice by addressing one injustice, but not addressing another. I can't exactly remember where in the paper it was. Yeah, I, I think it's up near, up near the top end in terms of the go- looking at the government's governance section. I mean, in that... It, and that it, yeah, I mean, just... I mean, I mean, well, I suppose this can link on to the kind of... Uh, convers- like the conversation about outdoor experiments... And I think one of the things is, one of the difficulties is, uh, and I know this has been highlighted by a couple of academics in response to the in response to the letter, in terms of climate justice, I think geoengineering is one of, is a difficult one, primarily because it's this idea of costs, like from an intergenerational perspective, but also from a kind of distributive perspective. Because I think there's a couple of couple of things that geoengineering would struggle to like a couple of conflicts that geoengineering would struggle to kind of reconcile and i think that's like in terms of like the costs and the benefits i think that like properly accounting for the costs and defining exactly what the benefits are of its use and when it's used if it's used for example even in the re- even in the research, like even in like like not even considering kind of its use at the moment, and just focusing primarily at the research, the research side of the research side of things. If you consider like the benefits, obviously within like if you're gonna if you're gonna govern if you're gonna govern something, you're gonna need to define all what these are. It needs to be it needs to be accurately accurately defined. Like 
the benefits, who's it, who's it going to benefit? How is it going to benefit? What exactly, what exactly would, will they be and what parties will benefit? But I mean, that's kind of deeper question in terms of looking at the actual technology, like the actual technology. So I guess that's the kind of patent side of things, but then also the kind, the actual benefits from an environmental perspective as well. And I think this comes back into the issue with the term development, right? Yeah. I think in general, looking at the benefits of a technology and how potentially to increase them and decrease the risks would definitely be considered development. Mm. And yet from this perspective, without that knowledge, we cannot, or at least without decreasing our uncertainty with regards to that knowledge, we cannot have any attempt to get climate justice because we are either going to be dismissing a technology without knowing its true costs and benefits. Yeah. Where... And I think, or we're going to be potentially locking something in and, and accepting something, which might be really bad. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important. This is sort of where I was coming onto the courage point. It's important to have the courage to suggest the world is messy. Yeah. Climate change is terrible. It is already baked in some injustices. We won't be able to fully stop them. But it's a question of what is the most effective thing to do to reduce them. Yeah. And I think in general, and we do need to take aside the moral hazard, which is sort of the elephant in the room here. But in general more evidence towards that end is really useful and because otherwise we can't as i might say we i mean both the international community although i think that generally tends to focus on real politics but also researchers policy advisors civil society can't make reasoned decisions about whether this is compatible with climate justice or not without their evidence and i'd suppose that the those people who are against this would say we're in a was it's against research would say we're in a situation of complete cluelessness that the uncertainties are so large that no research will reduce them but i don't think that's true (laughs) given that we're in a position with climate change where we would say we are not in a situation of complete cluelessness yeah in a situation of massive uncertainty you know there's still like a 10 percent chance that climate sensitivity is above six degrees. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's massive. Yeah. But we're not in a situation of complete cluelessness. And given we're working on the same models with the same system, I don't see how we're in a position of complete cluelessness that outdoor research won't be able to at least reduce some of the uncertainties. Yeah. And the final thing is it seems to make some ethical privileging between those people who would be impacted by solar geoengineering and impacted by climate change without solar geoengineering. Where it seems to take like climate change without solar geoengineering is sort of like an omission. So, and not taking a really consequentialist view. So it would suggest like the omission of not causing harm by solar geoengineering yeah. is more important than potentially having some benefits, but also causing harm. But I think that makes presents climate change like that's not something we've actively done yeah yeah we're choosing between two situations which might have benefits and harms mm. and so solar geoengineering in that model isn't something which is inherent you know it inherently has some negatives to it but it isn't inherently worse than a non-solar geoengineered climate that's really got really really bad yeah, yeah. And, and, so, uh, yep. and i mean i kind of when you kind of consider as well that the potential is there to protect critical ecosystems you kind of wonder well why would you why would you completely try and put the brakes on something that may 
assist in protecting the critical ecosystem, like, for example, in the Arctic, by increasing albedo modification, lowering atmospheric temperatures, it may preserve that, preserve that environment. In the, uh, yeah, and this is where I think we come back to the hubris, right? In the same way where there are people who say, uncritically, we should be able to have solar geoengineering research because solar geoengineering, if we get it right, will be really important. And there should be no sense of consideration, informal governance, anything like that. No sense of deliberation. In the same way that that is hubristically assuming that your assumptions are correct and locking in a single future, a ban like this is doing the exact same thing. It is hubristically yeah. assuming that their governance concerns, their weighing up of climate justice, their weighing up of the uncertainties of, of geoengineering outweigh the benefits. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but I don't think we're at a stage yet where we can be doing steps that try and lock in a, a single future. Yeah. And I think, and we need to be doing things that can ideally allow us to have gathered as much information before that decision is made. Yeah, yeah. And this is what also comes into my key issue with the ban on outdoor research, which is I think outdoor research is the completely inappropriate thing to ban. Yeah. Because low environmental impact outdoor research is potentially very useful at reducing a huge amount of the uncertainties, not all mm -hmm. of them, but a huge amount of them. It's very useful for other things as well and really hard to distinguish. In fact, low environmental impact energy engineering experimentation is impossible to distinguish physically yeah. from others. And I think that leads to, although they do acknowledge this in the paper, they just seem to suggest that they will sort of ignore that issue and if they and just not govern that sort of stuff. So if yeah. they're not going to do that, then you're governing based on intention, which seems odd to me but also seems to acknowledge that low environmental impact solar geoengineering experimentation doesn't present an info hazard, i.e. the research that you get out of that isn't inherently negative. Yeah, It's sort of the normalizing effect, which I can somewhat, which I, I agree with. But I think that's why I think the boundary between indoor-outdoor research is the complete inappropriate place to even be discussing the moratorium. Yeah. Some artificial boundary which doesn't have an impact on really how like on the impact of other people doesn't shouldn't have that much of an impact on how normalized the much more appropriate place to put that boundary is between high environment is between low environmental impact research and high environmental impact research where we can start to physically distinguish solar geoengineering research we don't like we can start to have a massive a much much more likely to have a slippery slope effect it's much more analogous to the mm. moratoriums that we've had on other on the development of other things as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, we we, we stop gain of function research because that is actively potentially going to cause harm, but that doesn't mean that we stop the low impact research on what proteins are in DNA. You, you yeah. can help with that gain of function research, but also can help with other things because we can see that we can put up a boundary elsewhere. Yeah. And yeah. This pro and this seems to fit with their concerns, right, is if we could establish this boundary and make it a really strong one between low environmental impact and high environmental impact research, then we could put, push the decision making on governance down the line a bit so we've got time to actually build, consult, all that sort of stuff, while also not make hubristic assumption that either we should, re should definitely research in a way that might push on a slippery slope or shouldn't research. 
And for me, putting that boundary there seems like the best place. And I get that it's there were discussions sort of in the early 2010s about this, but there was no agreement on what level to distinguish. Yeah, yeah. But given the uncertainties already present in the open letter and the fact that they've not really cleared up any of the sort of comments, yeah. it seems like that sort of uncertainty shouldn't be an issue. And I'd like to hear from one of them at some point, and I'm hopefully going to be having some conversation with some signatories over the next week. Yeah, yeah. About why outdoor research is the point that they say is unacceptable, when actually there's a huge amount of benefits to outdoor research. They seem to be sort of pushing out the window. Yeah, and and I think just just taking your point about the reduction the reduction of uncertainty, especially when it comes to like outdoor low impact kind of research, I think this was one of the major one of the major issues behind the Scopex behind the Scopex experiment because I I did have the opportunity to talk to a couple of representatives from the Sami Council and as and like one of the key points that they that they did say was it's not for them to decide what to what we should research what we shouldn't research the key point that they were trying to get across is well there should be if this is going to be a, if, if this is going to happen then there needs to be a conversation and we need to we need to be part of that conversation if it's going to happen in our particular thing and and I mean this comes back this also comes back to my point about the whole idea of kind of vulnerable populations indigenous populations in and like the kind of use of sort of solar geo and this whole idea of like the kind of free prior informed consent procedure because the whole the key thing there as well as as well as the kind of the subtleties between whether whether it's interpreted as a kind of procedural rule or whether it's kind of interpreted as a substantive rule one of the key things that i've always kind of thought of in this context within the context of geoengineering is you can't have informed consent without like the informed bit you can't have the informed bit without the necessary research behind that so all parties involved in the kind of dialogue and decision making they're aware of the information, they're aware of the risks, they're aware of the benefits, the costs, etc. And they're aware of that, like the presence of that uncertainty and the potential to lower that uncertain that uncertainty through research. So I kind of think there's the that's why I kind of think outdoor experiments, outdoor experiments and the ban on outdoor experiments, especially if it's low, or the the, the kind of what the letter says, I don't see why low impact experiments should be prohibited. There's also an intergenerational justice point of view. Yeah. One of the more active young people in this field, I find, is really important, which is we seem to think that prior informed consent and also some degree of self-determination are pretty important principles. Given it's going to be my generation who will be living with the impacts, whether we choose not to deploy energy engineering or, or to deploy it, and also my generation who will be having to make the choice as to whether deploy solar geoengineering or not, with or without research, and probably yeah. make that choice over and over and over again. To give us to decide that we can't be in a position where we are informed to make this decision. Yeah. And the fact that there were no young people, no people of my generation involved in the conversation of the writing of this letter, right? As far as I can tell, they will then reach out to any young people to do it. I might be wrong there. I tend to keep relatively good tabs on what young people are doing in the space. So I assume they didn't. Seems to me to be a real, again, 
and and to be fair, this isn't just on their side. Stopex did this as well. There was not a single young person on their advisory board. Yeah, all yeah, this sort no, of stuff. It, no, nobody. Yeah, diversity is low. Uh, low are, diversity thing. We are just consistently excluded from the conversation. Yeah, around mm-hmm. around this. Which, if you're going to be putting a ban on in on low impact research, you're going to have. It's like a pretty can then leave us on in my generation uninformed about whether about the risks and possible benefits the benefits of banning low environmental impact research needs to be really 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 high to to breach that question of justice yeah and i just don't think it reaches it but also this comes back to that point that they were making right which is to say that you can't if you're breaching one area of justice without to benefit another that's not justice well that's exactly what this ban does. And that's yeah. exactly what everything does. You are not, and so that say that point doesn't seem to saliently stand. And if you are suddenly getting into the point where you're recognizing that this is a question of trade-offs, this is a question of complexity, this is a question where some people's rights are going to be breached. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have to decide who you're going to be benefiting. And it isn't clear to me that this, that a ban on low environmental impact research benefits the worst off benefits the people in in sort of in countries which are most adversely hit by climate change um and benefits people who are not yet born or are still too young to be able to do anything yeah yeah in fact survey after survey have shown that people in most more climate environment vulnerable countries tend to be more in favor of solar geoengineering research yeah um and you know there's a couple of young people out there from Thinking about someone like uh, Nisha Chaffee from Qatar, a couple of, um, I can't remember his name, unfortunately, which is really annoying. Uh, a fantastic Honduran climate, act, climate activist who's come into the, the geoengineering conversation recently via silver yeah. lining, some of their events. Speak, I've heard that Joshua, Joshua Ponasham, I think I might be wrong in terms of his actual, in terms of pronunciation of his surname. Apologies. He's fantastic. He is, and he's, a young African climate activist working on climate change and, and geoengineering, all of whom I've heard speak passionately about the need for research to protect their countries. Yeah. I think the question needs to be, how can is there not a way that we can do research or do the necessary low environmental impact research without blocking in the future, the slippery slope, without yeah. fully institutionalizing solar geoengineering as like a viable policy option in the near term which i yeah. i think that's the, the worry and and i share that worry with the letters writers but i don't share their conclusion that you do that by stopping low environmental impact outdoor research yeah i think that's a fundamental breach of justice where there is an option out there that can help protect my generation that can leave options open for a widening conversation that can allow other countries to particularly countries in the global south to develop their expertise more as well, which they like the degrees initiative obviously doing really well with. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think a reduction in legitimacy of the topic as this attempts to do might really harm initiatives like that. It just seems to me like their intentions are in the right place and their solutions badly, badly miss the mark. <laughs> yeah, I think so to be I mean I mean when it when it originally came out a couple of days ago i think it well it was on it was on twitter that obviously i saw i saw it like 
I, I saw it get tweeted, so I thought, oh, I'll have a look and investigate and like immediately scanning through. I mean, of course, the immediate thought was that it has like I can see what they're saying. And as we've as we've discussed, like there are some potential benefits, there are some potential benefits and there are some really good points in here that have raised important have and will no doubt raise important conversations. But I think largely it has missed the mark in terms of like what it was intending. I mean, I, I know there were some signatories that did jump onto that did jump onto Twitter in response to a few, and essentially clarified some points. I know there was quite a quite an extent, uh, extensive conversation between Holly Jean Book and I can't remember. I can't remember who, but it's like Duncan McLaren, I think, it might have been. Yeah, it might have been Duncan McLaren. But I know, I know. Duncan was saying that, well, no, the intention of the letter was X, and but then Holly pointed out and said, well, clearly it doesn't, it doesn't say that kind of thing. And I think, well, I, I think there are, well, like I say, I think while there are some good points, I think in some ways it has, it has missed the mark quite, quite, quite badly. And I think that this is the point with like an open letter, right? Which yeah, is, yeah. I understand your point with you know someone if someone doesn't agree with everything and sign, yeah, I've you know I've tried to write open letters before with large constituencies of people who broadly disagree with each other broadly disagree with the with with each other maybe on their interpretations but yeah. you sign an open letter you are signing into the wording that it that it has you are putting your name to that for then people to use that wording as they like you better be very very sure that you agree with it enough and that the harms the letters do won't mm. outweigh the benefits or at least you know, to put your name behind it and if it can very clearly be interpreted in this, I think the more obvious interpretation being less charitable to the latter. Yeah. I think it's a very dangerous thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm oh, sorry, carry on. Sorry, I was just I mean, like, I mean, largely, I, I think solar, like solar geoengineering is still, I think, I mean, even though it's been, it's been discussed for like what, three decades now, I think the early kind of, the early kind of references to it were like mid 1990s or uh, something yeah, the taboo, real taboo wasn't broke until Kritzen's yeah 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 i mean that's what i mean it was still i mean and largely i think it's still kind of viewed as a fringe i mean especially stratus like aerosol injection i think it's largely still kind of viewed as a sort of fringe science and i think mostly like large i mean large sections of kind of civil society i think then they're unaware of what of what it actually is i mean probably the most reference the most reference that most people get is from uh what was that really bad film geostorm or whatever it was with oh, no, geostorm, and then there's snowpiercer yeah that's the one that's the one that like and that's that's the thing i think those kind of narratives are the only thing that people can like relate to yeah, but yeah, so, so yeah, so I, th- I think largely with kind of publishing this this an open letter like this against that kind of background. I mean, I mean, it's been published obviously in the journal, so I don't think many people past academics and academia will read it anyway. And yeah, I think there's, I think there's, and I think this comes into the last question, which is mm. we've spoken about how much we disagree with the letter, but I think there is a very different question about whether we think the letter is useful to the conversation. And this is something which I'm not certain on yet. And I think we'll need to see. Yeah. Because I think it has opened up some very serious and really useful discussions. On the other hand, threatens to help normalize a position 
of we should ban outdoor experimentation and all this sort of stuff, which we and and a lot of these very very dangerous ideas, mm. which I think a lot of the signatories might not even agree with. Yeah. And so I think it's a really I think, and so I understand when a lot of them are saying, "Oh, this isn't attempt to censor, right?" Because we actually just want to open up the conversation. I'm sure they do, but at the same time, if this gets this becomes the normative narrative of, of what social engineering is, what's a good left wing person thinks of, let's say, when they think of engineering. That I think that really is a real negative and helps to shut down conversations, not yeah. expand it. Yeah. And I think this is where it comes down to us now and comes down to the letter signatories. If the letter signatories want to keep the discussion open, and if we who are disagree with the letter want to keep the discussion open, we need to not take sides, not not sort of go, everyone that thinks that research is bad is bad. Mad scientists and Mr. Freeze and all that kind of business. Yeah. And go, we need to also go, oh, these social scientists, they don't know what's going on. <laughs> As I know some people in the, the space have sort of been, you know, that's that's not constructive and that helps to close mm-hmm. down conversation. And similarly, those people who wrote the letter need to be open to criticism, need to perhaps even amplify some of that, need to clarify their different positions and try if they want to have an open discussion. And that's where they I think that's where they prove themselves in 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 their agreement with that, right? Mm-hmm. Is willing to work constructively. To address some of the problems they've had and to address some of the criticisms of this and really willing to allow for more open discussions and things like that and where those people who criticize this can show whether they're criticizing it in good faith or just just against it i think if if we as a community and i mean both those who criticize the letter and those in favor can come together and use this as a point to make a more equitable and large and more expansive discussion then this letter, as much as I disagree with that, could, could have been a real positive. Yeah. If it, yeah, if, yeah. It, if it goes the way that I think it probably will, either it will be a bit of a non thing, and this will be the last, you know, we'll have this podcast on it. Hear it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or it could end up being a massive negative and closing down conversation. Yeah. 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 I, think it's, I think one of the things that is interesting, though, about and kind of like on the subjects of closing conversation is that, I mean, they do try and re-emphasize towards the end that it's it they don't want to prohibit research or all that all that sort of business or not kind of I mean what does it say and it would not place exceedingly broad limitations on academic freedom the agreement will focus solely on a specific set of measures targeted purely at the development of solar geoengineering technologies under the jurisdiction of parties to the agreement okay granted but if if we if you're not doing if you're not giving public funding, if you're not, if you're saying no to no outdoor experiments, no deployment, okay, that's a kind of that's something that could be kind of navigated, kind of like you could get around that, and no support from international institutions, like you're killing, you're going to kill research anyway if you, like you're you're going to kill research if in the in these particular countries if you want to apply the agreement to its fullest so even though it says we don't want to kill research it will kill research Uh, but then that doesn't that still doesn't answer the question i mean it still doesn't answer the question if say for example they get i don't know 25 25 nations from the global north they all say kind of like right we're going to sign this we're not going to commit to solid geoengineering but then you have 30 nations from the global south or what we call global south that they, they would say well okay well we're going to develop geoengineering then 
Mm. It's like how it's like how would you get around that? How how would you get around that? Your agreement would be pointless, really. And there's there's other questions with this research thing as well, which is they say that it won't prohibit atmospheric and climate research as such and would not place broad limitations on academic freedoms. But there is no way that we've discussed, and I'm actually in the middle of writing a paper at the moment where we are mm. looking at how similar solar, uh, solar geoengineering and non-solar geoengineering research is. Mm. There is no way that you're, and I, and I know that in the paper that they briefly address this, but not much, there is no way that your, your thing can be effective if you don't place broader bands on climate and atmospheric research. Otherwise, you're basically encouraging people who want to do solar geoengineering research to just do it, but call it something else. And yeah. then you miss out. And that's, honestly, that is, at the moment, exactly what this sort of thing would completely encourage. And then, yeah. you're, then you're throwing out, you know, all your ideas of democracy and you know, consult, justice, etc. It goes and all out the window. I think there's a reason. I think the one reasonable argument that you might make for for keeping it under the radar, calling it something else, would be it wouldn't reduce the moral hazard. It would it would stop that. Grant you that. She think in general something that's a bit more secretive would be better at reducing the moral hazard. But yeah. I think the, the negatives of it, in terms of democracy, in terms of informed consent, in terms of making decisions for the future, in terms of justice just vastly outweigh that positive yeah definitely but actually that's the eventuality that a non-use agreement would push you towards because yeah. either you'd be gov- you'd have a completely ineffective governance that just didn't govern anything in which case it's irrelevant or you're in these broad bands on atmospheric research or you're doing what they say which is you're governing intention yeah. or actually you're governing stated intention yeah. and you're just driving it you're basically either driving the field into the ground but now there's a group of people that want to carry on researching so you're driving that underground. Yeah. <laughs> and as we said, their concerns are very valid and very useful. I just think the solutions are really bad and not very well thought out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think there, there's, I think, like we've said, I think there are some key things in here that would probably, probably going to, going to open up further conversation, which is good. I mean, it's good. I think, I think, I think all options, uh, well, I think we are getting to a point where more options should be on the table than just straightforward decarbonisation. I mean, of course, there's carbon, like carbon capture, carbon dioxide and removal. Now that's picking up steam, but still quite expensive technology. So yeah, so there we have it. Mm. And and I think let's for this to be constructive. I think the point is really for us in the conversation and all involved to focus on rather than just merely dismissing these complaints Mm. or merely accepting them, focusing on coming up with better solutions, improving on their solutions. And I'm sure, I'm sure they would say the same if they were here as well. Yeah. Or at least I hope they would. Yeah. I think so. I think if they kind of, if the kind of, I think like we've said, there's a clearer kind of demarcation between research and actual deployment so the kind of go when governance is developed further and there's more oversight i think if more if more is kind of focused on research i think i think developing a government system a governance system that's specifically focused on research with government oversight would be a lot easier than to try and tackle it you know all at once and say look right here's all the research 
yeah, let's tackle research and deployment. I think the research side of things, if it was focused on purely on that, I think that'd be a lot easier to navigate and a lot easier to kind of establish dialogue. I mean, we're I think, already, yeah, I think that's again this failure to distinguish between low environmental impact and high environmental yeah, impact. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is, and I guess it moves. I, th- I think some of it comes from the sort of failures in the early two thousand for people to try and get some degree of an agreement. I yeah, guess. yeah, but yeah. I think we talk about sort of informal governments like this. I think it's a much better place to put it. Yeah, I think definitely. it risks the moral hazard less. I think it allows you to have justice more, and it reduces these real issues. Mm. I think well, there are a couple of tweaks, and they weren't wouldn't even need to be that big, but they would fundamentally change the nature of the impacts of this. I think mm. it would broadly agree. It would broadly, I would broadly agree with the latter, and I think it would broadly agree with his concerns. I think their yeah. concerns are very valid. I think mm. what we just said, we think the solution is far too extreme and therefore stops, you know, leads to injustice. Yeah, yeah. So, final reflections then, Gideon, final reflections. Final reflections. The concerns of governance and research and justice and uncertainties are valid. Yeah, agreed. The some parts of the solution, in particular a temporary moratorium on actual deployment, valid. Yeah. The desire to recognize that research isn't just not value driven, like research can have implications when we do it and could lead to deployment if not done carefully, valid. The issue of the concern that stopping research that stopping research might stop other important research and we should make that not happen, valid. The solution, I might disagree slightly about how much I think public funding with development, what that development means, how much the IPCC should be involved. I think there's some real valid points with regards to that. The thing that I don't think is valid is the stopping outdoor research, yep. is the stopping funding for all development given development is a very, very, very broad thing. Yeah. But stopping any sort of normalization within governance institutions, I think, is, you know, we said that some normalization like in the IPCC, like including it in certain integrated assessment models, would be really bad. But some, like a special report, might be really, really useful. And certainly the stopping of outdoor research uh, is, is pretty much, I think, fundamentally unjust. Yeah. And also incompa- broadly incompatible yeah. with their claim that it won't stop other research. Mm. And on that note, I'd say their concerns are valid, their solutions are not. <laughs> In fact, I would suggest the solutions are actively very damaging to global justice, generational justice, and climate justice. And, and that the assumption that people in the global north now should be able to put something in place that locks in essentially a single future for the whole world based on is, is deeply hubristic and the fact that they would suggest that we can't trade that if something breaches any aspect of justice then it is unfeasible and not not able to be shouldn't be even considered is takes a deeply simplistic view of the world which i'm sure that they don't believe in yeah and that that should be combated and we need to recognize fundamentally this is a question of trade-offs this mm. is a question of how can we ensure the most justice for the most amount of people how can we make sure that whatever climate interventions we do 
benefit the people who are worst off the most and not not us wealthy people you know sitting here in the global north at the often white people sitting in the global north at the at the expense of indigenous and black and brown people often in the global south yeah yeah and i think yes geoengineering might increase that might make that worse but i think there's enough of an argument to suggest that it could make it better to suggest that closing down research at this stage is presumptuous deeply not cautious deeply unwise deeply hubristic and deeply unjust yeah i think that's i think that's a pretty good point to uh, to end on to be well, honest thank you very much for this <laughs> thank you everyone for listening thanks thanks everyone for listening gideon again thanks for having me on you can find me on twitter at g futterman g f-u-t-e-r-m-a-n and aaron you can find you can find me on twitter at a m cooper 86 and you can find the podcast on twitter at um reviewer to reviewer two with geo capital g and um thank you for and oh and you can find the letter on twitter because they have a website and a letter page at solar geo eng as well there's thank you already, for listening there's already a twitter page bloody hell <laughs> 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 cheers guys thank you see you later okay